You are more than your job. Pouring yourself into a single full-time job? It's the riskiest move you can make. Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Inside today's episode, we welcome Christina Wallace, author of The Portfolio Life, how to future-proof your career, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. Christina and I discuss why we need a dramatically different relationship with work, one that allows us to define ourselves beyond our paid labor. The answer? A portfolio life. It's an anti-hustle, pro-rest approach to work-life balance built on three tenets. First, you are more than any one role or opportunity. Second, diversification will help you navigate, change, and mitigate uncertainty. Finally, when, not if, your needs change, you can and should rebalance. Christina Wallace is a Harvard professor, serial entrepreneur, and self-described human Venn diagram. She adapts tried-and-true practices from entrepreneurs, creatives, and successful freelancers to help you avoid the cult of ambition and experience the freedom of building the flexible, fulfilling, and sustainable life you want. I'm so excited to welcome Christina to the show today, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. I'm so excited to welcome Christina Wallace to the program. Christina, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Your new book, The Portfolio Life, is one of my favorites. It's about (laughs) building a future-proof career, avoiding burnout, and building a life bigger than our business card. I love that title for the book. I'm curious what inspired you to write this book. That is a great question. I I joke, but like it's not entirely a joke that in part I wanted to write this to explain to my mother what it is I've been doing for the (laughs) last 20 some years. No, in, in, in large part, you know, I've been writing small pieces of this book for the last 10 years. I was a columnist for Forbes for four or five years. I had a podcast talking about many of these topics. I gave talks uh, all over the world and I kept getting, you know, audience members or readers and listeners writing in saying, thank you for putting words to this thing that I have been feeling. Can we talk more? And I realized at, at some point, sort of circa the pandemic, that if I wanted to scale my time and my impact, I needed to put this all together in a book because I couldn't keep doing these one-on-ones with perfectly delightful strangers. And so I pitched it to my my agent and she's like, oh, I've been waiting for you to do this. And so off to the races. <laughs> It's truly brilliant. And everyone has a unique background, but yours really stood out. And you describe <laughs> yourself as a human Venn diagram, which yes. I love. So 
when did you start to see this approach to your own life and kind of maybe what obstacles were there standing in the way of you achieving what seems to be a really beautiful balance in your life? Yeah. So I, I, you know, everything makes sense when you look at it backwards, right? Like you connect the dots after you've lived them. Um, I remember very distinctly in the fourth grade, someone asking me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was I wanted to be astronaut, president, an author, and a professor, but crucially all at the same time. Like it really (laughs) mattered that these were concurrent jobs to me. And, you know, everyone patted me on the head and said, that's cute. And, and we moved on. But for whatever reason, from a very early age, I knew that, number one, I liked a lot of different things. And number two, I liked getting to do them in the same day, right? And, and sort of being able to switch between my love of math, my love of music, my love of the arts and, and whatever else mattered that I could have all of these things. And so all the way through my education, I just kept pursuing all of them. And I think one of the great benefits of having a first love in theater and music is that it's very common in the arts to have several side hustles, to have the day job that gives you the health insurance while you act at night or or whatever else. And so that community really encouraged, like, of course, you're doing physics research in a lab while also directing this musical. Why wouldn't you you know, people in the outside world were like, what? But <laughs> but at least in the arts world, they're like, yes, yes, keep going. And so I, I just kept going. And I figured at some point, you know, I would get to a job or to a career that just clicked and then I would focus, right? And and that just never happened. <laughs> and, and I realized, you know, I, I think probably as I was like 35 and, you know, I got married, I started thinking about a family that I was like, no, no, th- this approach is actually what makes me happy. It's what makes me me. And I I think I finally felt the permission to do this forever when I met my husband and he was the exact same way. And I was like, okay, whew, solidarity, right? Like it's um it's doable. It's a run up against our culture though. I think I kind of want you mention a word that I think we can't avoid if we turn on a device or click on a blog post, everyone's talking about hustle. Embrace yes. the hustle, right? Yes. I'm curious, what do you think about hustle and this idea of the daily grind? Yeah, so I hate it. <laughs> straight straightforward. I hate hustle. And in fact, that's why I named one of my models the moonlighting uh, model rather than the side hustle model. No, I, I hate this notion. And certainly in the tech world, the entrepreneurship world, which I have been in for the last 15 years, this notion of like, oh, thank God it's Monday. I get to go to work every And you're like, come on. Not everything has to be hustle. Not everything has to be working 20 hours a day. And in fact, there's plenty of research, and I point to it in the book, that having downtime, having rest, having other things in your life make you better at your work. Not that that needs to be the reason you have rest. You're entitled to rest, whether or not it makes you more productive or more creative. But but the point is that like you, you can't just grind all the time and have any of that work be any good. You need to refresh. And, and you know, you, you see this everywhere in nature. Why would we think we as humans would be different? So I really struggle with that notion. And certainly the, you know, give 110%, that, that entire mentality that has seeped out of tech into the rest of the world, I think is, honestly, it's just a poor excuse for late stage capitalism trying to like wring the last little bit of productivity out of workers. And I think it's up to us to set boundaries and say, no. I'll give you 85%. The rest is for me. Yeah, but there's some alarming 
facts you cite in the book, particularly with millennials, right? There's a, there's a long tail to this, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, millennials are, are, I mean, you know, I'm turning 40 this year, like we're reaching our midlife crisis and we're like, hey, <laughs> uh, number one, nothing about our life is sustainable in the way that it was for our parents. And number two, like I'm still working my butt off and, and like I can't afford a house. I haven't paid off my student loans. Nothing like childcare is through the roof. So if none of the benefits of the hustle are going to be granted to me by this point in my life, why on earth would I keep hustling? Like this doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And so you're seeing a really wide pushback among millennials and then Gen Z behind it has been watching all of this and taking notes. And they're like, yeah, no, like I opt out of that. This entire, you know, we've given these cute names of quiet quitting and whatever else, but it's real. It's saying like, hey, the relationship between workers and in, and you know companies isn't what it used to be. There was a, a an understood sort of trade off of I'm going to give you loyalty and hard work and all of my focus, and you are going to give me stability and growth and the you know the resources, the income I need to build a life. And that relationship is broken. And so this notion of like hustle at all costs no longer like that calculus that equation doesn't work so millennials are are backing out gen z wants nothing to do with it and instead we're looking for ways to have a sustainable life now to have happiness now and not just postpone it so that someday we might get to retire cuz also we know we're never going to get to retire Exactly. Yeah. For any boomers or seniors listening, we have the data, right? Like millennials have 300% more student debt than their parents. They're half as likely to own a home. Yes. Right. I think you share a great story about your father, right? And, my and grandfather, his, yeah. Your grandfather, my, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he he had one year of college after he, you know, worked, um, uh, fought in World War II in the Army. Uh, one year of college was like, yeah, this isn't really for me. Dropped out and got a union job building cars on the assembly line of General Motors, where he stayed for over 40 years. He welded chassis. He loved it. And... And that was it. Like that was his job. And he was able to raise three children, buy a house, put them through college with a stay-at-home wife. And then my mom came along and she was a single mom and she had two daughters and uh, was working as a secretary, uh, has been a professional administrative assistant her whole career, salaried with health insurance, good health insurance, and had that stability and had that work-life balance. And like, sure, she couldn't afford to put us through college because she was a single mom, but like still was able to build a life for herself. My husband and I have professional degrees. We make an obscene amount of money compared to what my mother made when raising us. And we are just making the pieces of our life fit together. Like two kids in daycare in the Boston area, we're paying six grand a month post-tax dollars. <laughs> like this is obscene. And so it's just every piece of the American dream has become more out of reach. And when you put it all together, it's entirely uh, just, it's it's a dream. It, there's nothing about it that's real anymore unless you had money to start with. Um, and I think that's where the the frustration with, um, you know, the party line of like, pick a job, go to college, study the thing, work hard, and it all works out in the end. And the truth is it doesn't. Yeah. They're, they're, I think you quote either Jay Chakrabarty or Derek Thompson, two of my favorite writers. Mm. There is, there is, they said, quote, there is no linear life, at least one I found that I would wish to have. Yes. What do you, yes. What, yeah. How do you reconcile that with our current educational system, which is yeah. very linear? 
Yeah, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating because, you know, one of the things, um, actually one of my favorite kind of frameworks that I learned when I was in business school uh, from my professor, Clay Christensen, was this notion of emergent versus deliberate strategy. And a deliberate strategy is one, if you're thinking about this from a corporate uh, point of view, it's one, it's very linear. It says like, here's where we want to be in 10 years. Here's where we are today. And now what are the steps we're going to take to get from here to there? And deliberate strategy only works when you can see 10 years into the future, when you believe that 10 years from now is going to look roughly like it does today, and that you can see how the steps connect to get from here to there. Emergent strategy is what you see startups do. It's what you certainly see uh, you know, companies that are thinking about innovation and, and disruption do. And it is what individuals have had to now employ when they think about their own lives and their own careers, because an emergent strategy is one that says, I don't know what the world looks like in 10 years. I don't even know what it looks like in five years. And so I can't plot from here to there. I don't know where there is. I don't know that there even exists by the time I get to there. So I need to take much smaller steps and learn what I learned from doing that thing, and then take the next step and learn what I learned. And and so how does this apply to education? This is highly relevant. If you think about a lot of the jobs that Gen Z and everyone who comes after that are going to have don't exist today. And so it's impossible for you to say, well, I want to do that thing. So I'm going to study this thing. And that's going to prepare me for that. That That is, that's not possible. And so even even if you had a sense of what you were interested in at 16 or 17, you literally can't prepare in only those four years or five years, however many years you you go to school for, for the rest of your life, because the rest of your life looks nothing like what the world does today. And, and so instead, there's, there's sort of two things. One is that I think it leads to a, a mandate for a much more interdisciplinary approach to education. Sort of what are the, the pieces, the foundational mindsets and principles and things that I need to know about how the world works, how to write, how to be thoughtful, how to analyze data, how to understand history and the complications that have led us to where we are at a geopolitical landscape, how to understand climate change and science and like what, how my choices interact there. And then we need to teach them how to learn in perpetuity, like that learner's mindset forever. Um, because whatever you're going to need 10 or 15 years from now, you're not going to pick up while you're in college. And that requires a, a massive shift from the educational standpoint about how how we teach at the college level and even, you know, in high school and, and middle school. It's just a shift that like, there are not knowable things that I'm going to now teach them to you. It's I need to give you the principles and the mindsets and the techniques to be learning in perpetuity. That's great. And I think as leaders, a lot of people listening to this have employees and mentoring young new teammates, mm-hmm. you know, might see that as a strength, right? That it's this sure. ability to let new employees learn new things. You say in the book, you know, let's not, I, I think of like a boss or a parent who thinks like, what do you mean you're going to do all these different things? That, <laughs> that is, is that a sign of flakiness or is that okay, is actually a superpower? Like how could we be better leaders in encouraging that, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is to, to be really bullish on anyone who, who shows up who applies for a job or raises their hand for something who doesn't on paper 
look qualified for it. Like for me, that raises an interest level that says, okay, what is it about the experiences you've had so far or the training that you're interested or the future that you see for yourself that you think this is the right next step for you? Because I don't see it. That doesn't mean it's not true. So walk me through it. Help me understand this. This is why I love hiring former actors for sales jobs, right? Like help me connect the dots of what you did and what you want to do. So I'm always really intrigued when people have these untraditional, unconventional backgrounds and they can already see what is interesting here. The other piece is to really always be thoughtful as a manager about these growth assignments, these growth opportunities for your team that are not just the obvious linear, like, hey, you want to be a manager, you got to try this thing and that thing. It's like, is there a diagonal growth assignment? Is there something? And this is where you have to get to know your employees. You have to be able to talk to them about what is in their portfolio or what is in, you know, on their radar that they love. Because you might find that marketer that's like, actually, I'm learning to code on the side. You're like, that's awesome. Why don't we go and give you a project over with our dev team? And once you pick that up, let's find where the intersection of marketing and tech like work for our company. And that might be a next new opportunity for them. So being really proactive about constantly growing your team, this is why it's going to be helpful. It's not just so that you retain this talent, although that is certainly going to help you retain talent if they see that they can grow in your organization rather than having to go and find a new job. But it also is going to give you as an organization a ton more flexibility when the world changes and you need your talent model, your your cost structure to look dramatically different. Right. If you have demonstrated an excitement for reskilling, for flexibility, for teamwork, your employees are going to be psyched about this too. And not just in a world that's like, oh, either you're going to fire me or I have to do this new thing. It's like, no, no, no. We generated AI. We don't need these jobs anymore, but we do need these new ones. Let's find a way to make this work. Right. So flexibility is the name of the game from here on out. And if you can cultivate this at an organizational level, like you've unlocked, you know, the magic of survival. It's such a great tip. I, uh, and I know there's plenty of data supporting this concept, mm-hmm. right? That, that intentionally hiring diverse teams it makes them more resilient. They're higher in productivity. And now mm-hmm. if there's any actors listening uh, who are <laughs> thinking of pivoting to sales, uh, our listeners are now, are now primed to hire you. There you go. <laughs> uh, you mentioned emergent strategy. Is it safe to say this concept of portfolio is an emergent strategy for life? And then second part to the question is, what exactly do you mean by a portfolio, which I love. It's such a brilliant, brilliant concept. What exactly do you mean by it, by applying it to our life? Yeah. So I'll start with the second question because I think it it helps answer the first. When I talk about a portfolio for your life, you can think about this the same way as a portfolio for your your finances, right? So at any given point, you are thinking about how do I allocate my resources across these different instruments that have a different level of risk and reward such that collectively they give me the income, the security, the growth, whatever it is that I need for this season of life. So when you're young, you're told put it all in stocks, riskier investments. You can have a little bit in bonds, maybe a little cash, maybe a little real estate, but like you have time and you want more risk so that you have more reward. And as you go through these seasons of life and you need something different, as you get closer to retirement, you're supposed to change that allocation, rebalance it to be a little bit more 
uh, safe and secure, right? And so you change how much you put in each. So this is the exact same concept for a portfolio life. The idea is that you, at any season of life, you're going to have this mix of things that you can put your time, your talents, your energy into. Part of it is your your work, your career, of course. Part of it is going to be your family. Um, you'll have your health. You'll have hobbies. You might have a community, a, a religious practice, or some other community that means a lot to you. And together, this makes up your life. Your time, your money, your attention totals up. You can think of it like a pie chart. Totals up to, call it 100%. Anything you give to one is by definition not available to the other. And this is why I hate the term work-life balance because you sort of think of work and life in in opposition to each other when in reality work is a part of your life. It's a, a subset of your life. And so you might go through chapters as I am in one right now where I have a one-year-old and an almost four-year-old where the family piece of my life takes up a lot, <laughs> like a lot. And so when I think about what I have left for career, for hobbies, for health, I have to be really intentional about making sure I'm designing that mix appropriately. And that's why I went through four years ago this pretty big shift from being an entrepreneur for a decade to being a professor of entrepreneurship. It's a little bit more stable. It's a little bit less emotional roller coaster day in and day out. And it gives me a ton more flexibility and autonomy so that I can deal with the roller coaster and the unpredictability of small children who are constantly getting sick. So you think about these seasons or these chapters of your life and you design them accordingly. And what I think makes this an emergent strategy allows you to respond to the world at large is that you can start thinking through, right? What is the mix of things that I'm doing, whether I'm paid for them or not, that are developing my skills, diversifying my network, my relationships that I can lean on, and and sort of almost like how do you design diversification into this portfolio. A great example of this, I tell this story in the book of one of my dear friends, Carla Stickler, who was a Broadway actress. For the first season of her life, for almost 20 years, she was a Broadway actress and she was good. She was good at it. She played uh, Alphaba in Wicked on Broadway, like the pinnacle oh, wow. of a Broadway actress's career, right? But she was getting to this point where she had recognized the friction the season of life was about to change. And this is pre-COVID, but she's like, look, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about a family with my partner. That's really hard to do when you're performing eight shows a week. Um, I have these moments where I'm thinking about my health and about other things that I want to pursue. And there was a little bit of like even creative friction where she's like, I only get to make art when someone else chooses me, right? It's the actor's dilemma always because you have to be wait to be casted by a director or a casting director. And so it can feel very stifling from a creative point of view. And she goes, okay, how can I meet those needs through hobbies or through other opportunities right now, even if I'm still performing eight shows a week? She took up started learning how to do ceramics. She started throwing ceramics and learning how to make uh, pottery. And she started learning to code as a way to use a different part of herself and to just develop this skill to meet new people and to have this other piece. She wasn't sure what she was going to do with these skills, but they were there and she wanted them. And then the pandemic hit. And as we know, Broadway closed for over a year. And all the backup jobs that a lot of Broadway artists had are being servers, bartenders in restaurants. Those were closed too. 
And so she had the skills, the network, the access to say, okay, I'm going to make a pivot. And Broadway is closed. Performing is not an option, but coding is. She made this transition. She went out there and got hired as a junior web dev. And she showed up not just as like a, hi, I'm brand new and I have to start over, even though I'm like 37, 38. She also could bring some of those experiences from performing to the table and say, look, I'm really good at listening and talking to people, which is not something all developers are excellent at, (laughs) right? So she could say like, these are some of the things that I bring in addition to the delight and the excitement of a junior developer who's like starting from the ground up and was able to make that transition. And, and so, you know, wasn't out of work for a year and a half, like many of her colleagues were. And then there's an, a lovely little coda to this. I don't want to give too much of the ending away in case you do decide to go out and read the book, but she realized in making this transition that didn't spell the end of her performing career. She still is in her identity. She still is an artist. She still is an actor. And she found a really spectacular way to still get to perform and make that part of her life. But now that is more of the unpaid part. And the coding is now the paid part. She just recently got poached by Spotify to go be a developer for them, which is like the most perfect intersection of her interests. So so this is what I mean by sort of Having this opportunistic, emergent strategy approach to what comes next. There are so many moving pieces. These disruptions are coming fast and furious. So how can you have kind of the raw materials in place to be able to respond to these disruptions? And then number two, how can you be really thoughtful about the mix of activities and and time and talents and whether they're serving you for this season of life? recognizing it's just a season, right? And when that season changes, you can rebalance again. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now, back to the program. Yeah, I think, you know, in the book, you highlight that these extreme users, as you will, like a, like a software development, they're mm-hmm. usually artists, right? And I'm curious yeah. what else you'd learn from them, particularly as it relates to all these moving pieces. I could not imagine being on Broadway. I was like, <laughs> that's like 99.99% <laughs> of every waking moment is devoted to that craft. Yeah. And then thinking about all those other moving pieces. What, what else did you learn from that group? I'm really fascinated. I mean, I, the biggest thing at the core of this is to not let your job be your identity, right? And I think actors are the perfect example of this. They are independent from the character they portray on stage. They have to be. When you lose yourself in that character, you have nothing else. You have no grounding. You don't get to 
pop out of it at the end of the day. And so they have to have this really intentional separation of who am I and then what am I doing for my job? And I think it's just a perfect encapsulation of what I hope, what I would love to see everyone have, which is understanding of like, I am so much greater than, I am so much more than how I'm monetizing my time today. And in and in America, like we have this problem that we really do conflate our work as our identity. We that's how we introduce ourselves at dinner parties. That's we hold on to that. And the risk there is that your identity and your income can be taken away from you in the same conversation. And we've yeah. seen that in the last few years, this like jolt of a, a labor market that went from laying everyone off to suddenly not having enough people to hire to then laying everyone off again, right? Like it's all over the place in just a couple of years. And so having your identity, your reason for getting out of bed every morning, like how you show up in the world, having that so tied up to what you do puts you so much at risk to having the rug pulled out from under you. And I would say, I mean, everyone who saw me when I started my first company was like, oh, that's so risky. You're so brave. And I was like, no, at least I know when I'm about to fire myself. <laughs> like <laughs> I can see when the money is running out. I think it's so much riskier today to work for someone else and not have that visibility and, and at least pretend day in and day out that everything is safe and fine and secure because it's yeah. not. Yep. So that's where I think having having that um, ability to separate yourself from your job is going to be crucial. And that identity piece, that's where I start the entire argument of the portfolio life. Once you can see that you are more than your job, that you have all these other pieces, whether they're hobbies or interests or things that you nerd out about, then you start to recognize all of the opportunities that you might be able to pursue. That just because you've done this so far doesn't mean it's the only thing you can do for the rest of your life. If you're not dead, you still have options. So yeah. <laughs> like start with a broader aperture of your identity and then you'll get a much broader view of how you might be able to, you know, zig and zag and pivot along the way. Yeah, it kind of primes you for this second pillar of the portfolio life, which mm -hmm. is embrace optionality. And it reminds me of that joke of being an entrepreneur, like I'm finally my own boss, but the downside is my boss is now the most irrational, you know, like, <laughs> person, like you know, the exactly. most dysfunctional person I've ever had to work for. <laughs> so let's talk about embracing optionality. And I think a lot of people listening to this, particularly as professionals, mm -hmm. that is their identity. And even worse when they've like invented the suture technique they use for <laughs> surgery, they're like, it's like named after them. Like it's yeah. a whole world yeah, in yeah, yeah. profession. Uh, you know, what does that mean? What do you, what have you seen and what have you learned, particularly with your story and your transformation and, and a portfolio life to really embrace different options? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it comes, you know, it, you you tied into this, like my crazy background, it makes no sense on paper, but I lean into it at all costs. You know, I, I was a theater person. I was a musician. I was a math person. I got into entrepreneurship and I have had these really distinct chapters. You know, my my early 20s was making theater and performing and like that's literally how I made my income. And then I switched to entrepreneurship and did a decade of that. And what's been fascinating in the last kind of two years is this theater thread has resurfaced uh, in an opportunity to be an investor and now a producer on Broadway in a way that I never could have seen coming. And and feels so full circle because I get to tie back to these roots that I put down 20 years ago and in some ways thought I had left behind. But because I, 
I knew that that was an intrinsic part of who I am and what I care about. And I stayed in touch with those people. I stayed connected to that world. It kept that door open, even if I didn't take that choice for you know two decades. And so I think as professionals, when you think about, okay, who else am I? What else do I bring to the table? Sometimes I, I do this workshop with folks mid-career and I'm like, okay, what else is in your Venn diagram? And they're like, literally nothing. And I'm nothing. like, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> like, let's excavate some of the things that you might have put away in order to look serious, in order to look focused. Go back. Like, what section of the newspaper do you read first? What corner of Reddit or Twitter or TikTok do you nerd out in? What do you do on weekends when no one else is bugging you? Like everyone has a handful of things, whether they're a baker or a gardener or someone who like really freaking loves to color code everything in their closet. I don't know. Like everyone has a thing or three, even if you haven't touched it in two decades. So bring it back out and start to think at a very high level of like, how might I reintroduce this to my life? And it again, you don't have to monetize everything. Not everything needs to be a side hustle. But is this something that you want to investigate or pursue or start up again, even if you're back at square one? I haven't played piano in 20 years, but like, is that something I want to bring back to the table? I don't know. So, so you know, in think about what are some of these other things you might do. And at the beginning, there are no connections. It makes no sense. You're like, I'm a surgeon who has a couple of hobbies. That's great. That's great. You know why I love surgeons having hobbies? It means the day they realize that they don't want to operate anymore, they are not afraid to retire because they have other things to get out of bed for. Exactly. And the surgeons who don't have hobbies operate for another 15 years until someone forces them to retire. And usually along the way, some mistakes are made or yes. some risky moments happen. And so this is where I would love to encourage every member of Congress over the age of 70 to get a hobby, right? Like there is joy <laughs> yes. outside of work. Go find it. So it starts with just bringing these things back into your life. But what you'll find along the way is that serendipity happens, right? These, this optionality, this, um, these disruptions, they're, they're not just bad. They can be really good too. And these moments of serendipity only occur when you are aware and looking for them. So suddenly, I don't know, you're like the the community that you're a big part of is throwing a fundraiser and they need someone amazing to bake like the most elaborate cake in the world and they can't afford to hire an expert. And you're like, actually, I could totally do that. And you get to go do that. And by doing that, you run into some famous person who's like, hey, you're pretty awesome, right? And like all of these moments you can't plan for, they're quote unquote moments of luck. But in reality, these serendipitous moments, this is what make up a life. And so opening the options then starts you down a path where one day you say like, should I start a bakery? (laughs) (laughs) Would I rather do that than operate? And you're like, I don't know. Maybe it's a completely different day-to-day existence, but like Maybe, right? And and I think I, one of my best friends just went through this. She was a middle school teacher for two decades. And one day I was like, I kind of wish I had gone to medical school. And I'm like, well, you're not dead yet. And so <laughs> she went to medical school at like 36 and graduated at 40 and is now starting her residency as an OB-GYN 
a solid 15 years older than everyone else and freaking loves it because not everyone is meant to have one thing that they do for 50 years, which is what our careers look like now. I love it. It's such a beautiful concept. And I, I will highlight the, in, in dental school for me, the, the non-traditional students were the most interesting. They were the wisest. They were, they were the mm-hmm. best. Like the 42-year-old architect in my dental school class was the coolest guy. Because he had some life. He'd lived some life. He's like, yeah, architecture. <laughs> just don't want to be a dentist now. Like, okay. Welcome and I group. bet his dental practice has the best architecture. Of course, right? You know? Yeah. He, was like, he just went, he went from macro to micro architecture. <laughs> so building teeth. Um, I mean, I just have to point out, you know, I I know uh, an orthodontist very, very well. I adore him. And he is very good at his job. And he is bored all day long, <laughs> right? Like, for the most part, day in and day out, he's like adjusting teenagers, yep. you know, braces. And so as a result, he, for the last, like, I don't know, five, six, seven years, has been basically forcing his wife and his family to, like, move houses every three years because he wants a project, Something right? Like, <laughs> he wants to buy and sell and renovate. And his wife is kind of like, can we stop, please? Can you pick up any other, <laughs> other hobby, hobby so that I can stop packing and unpacking boxes? <laughs> but it's just, it goes to show that, like, even if you love it, you might need more than that. Yeah. And it's okay to have more than that. Just maybe pick a thing that doesn't annoy your spouse. <laughs> right. Particularly that most of us made this decision at the age of 18 to yes. go to 12 years of school. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's like if I went to any 18-year-old today and said, for the rest of your life, you need to decide if you're going to work on teeth until the day you die. Like, will yeah. you make that decision? I hope most of them are wise enough to say, uh, not yet. Let me, give me some time. Particularly <laughs> because at 18, you don't even realize that working on teeth is like one piece of what you do. The rest of what you do is like paperwork and yeah. calling up parents <laughs> to be like, why haven't you paid me? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I love it. Uh, in chapter four, I don't want to give away the entire book. I want people to go read the book. But I, I really think you could charge a hundred times the price of the book for chapter four because you suggest we start with a cup of coffee. Yeah. And you give these three questions. I'm curious if, if we're okay sharing those three questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Number one is when have you seen me the happiest? Yeah. Number two is what do you come to me for? And number three is where do I stand out against my peers? I'm curious what happened when you sat down with your friends and your colleagues with a cup of coffee and asked those questions. What did you learn? Yeah. So I, you know, the context uh, for those listening, um, I, I had this moment of absolute crisis after my first startup failed, where I was completely broke, like literally had paid my rent with a cash advance on my credit card. And so the time, the clock was ticking. I had 30 days to get a job before the next rent payment was due. And at the same time was completely paralyzed because I had no idea who I was or what I had to offer or why anyone would ever want to hire me. And so in this moment of extreme desperation, I had to become incredibly vulnerable. And I reached out to everyone I knew and said, can we get coffee? Also, you have to buy the coffee because I'm broke. And, um, and I need, I need your help. I need, I need you to tell me about me. <laughs> and I don't think I would have had the guts to ask those questions if I hadn't been so desperate. I have to be honest. But I went out there and I asked them these questions and it was astonishing how consistent their answers were. When I was talking with people who had known me since high school and people who had known me for six months, like they all kind of hit on very similar themes. And when I, I took notes along the way at every sort of four or five conversations, I tried to synthesize it. 
And by the end of this, I literally did 70 coffee chats, which is overkill. You don't have to do 70. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I came out of this with one of the biggest insights was I was happiest when I was in control of my own calendar. And this was crucial because I do so many things. I love to do so many things, but the only way I can squeeze them all in is if I'm the one who decides when the things happen. <laughs> and so if I am in, for example, like a client services job, which I was for a very long year of my life, you're not in control of your calendar. You think you're working toward a deadline and then the deadline blows up and suddenly they ask you to pull an all-nighter for three straight days. Or like you get a yes to go to your friend's wedding and then the client says, oh, just kidding. And you have to cancel, <laughs> right? So so yep. you're not in control of your calendar. I was like, okay, this is important. I cannot do that. I need to be in a job where I am the one calling the shots, even if that means I am like a bigger fish in a smaller pond, that is crucial for me to be happy. Um, the, uh, the thing that they come to me for is storytelling. It's connecting the dots. And um, I have always been decent at this, but I never realized that that was like a thing that not everyone could do. <laughs> I just assumed everyone <laughs> told stories and, you know, loved to be on stage and tell jokes, whatever else. And people were like, are you joking? No, like this is the thing you do. <laughs> and so people would come to me when they were stuck in a rut or needed to, you know, connect the dots of their product or their resume. And I was like, oh, okay. So how does that translate into a job? Well, it means I could do something in marketing, communications. That's obviously a lot of storytelling. It also means I could be in like a CEO job where a lot of what you're doing is like setting the strategy and making sure everyone understands it. You're all rowing in the same direction. So I was like, okay, I've got some context for the function I might do. And then where do I stand out against my peers was like, I can go from zero to two. A lot of people can go from like 100 to 1,000. Some people can go from like 10 to 100. I can go from zero to two, zero to 10. I can take an idea, just a kernel of a concept and think, okay, what, what now? Who do I need? What are the steps? In what order? How can I do them? And crucially, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and literally do every single piece of that until I can get the right people to join me. I'm not afraid of like learning how to do some basic accounting. Thank you, Google. And so, and so that like that ideation to first iteration of something is my sweet spot, which means I needed to stay in early stage startups. So this gave me like a function, uh, a stage of company, a size of company, and sort of what are the key attributes of what would make me successful in that role. And it became really helpful, not just in getting that next job, but when I was ready to make this big pivot kind of four years ago when I wanted to have kids, I was like, okay, I, I have these guardrails for what I know makes me happy. So how can I be sure that whatever I'm doing next still fits within what I'm amazing at, what makes me happy, and like what I need for the next season? I really like that. I'm, I'm curious because in my experience, I think back to the great leaders I've had the chance to learn from mm -hmm. or study or observe. They are great storytellers. Yeah. Do you have any advice to listeners who are in that <laughs> role going like, I didn't think storytelling was part of my job. And they realize like, it's like almost all of your job trying yeah, to get no, people rowing is. in the same direction. What advice so you're, do you have? You're around? lucky you're talking to me today and not on the day that I stood you up because <laughs> a new book has just come out called The Perfect Story by oh, Karen cool. Eber. It literally just came out and it is a like paint by numbers guide to telling amazing stories. 
I think, you know, if you come from a storytelling background of writing or acting uh, or filmmaking or whatever, like some of these things you just, you don't have the like framework to actually um, articulate them because they just seem so obvious. But I think for anyone who's like, that's not my training, it's really helpful to have someone break it down to be like, who is the audience? What do you want them to feel? How are you connecting the dots from where they're starting to where they're going, right? It's this amazing um, articulation of what makes a good story. So that would be my my primary uh, advice. Go check that out. The other thing I would offer for anyone who has to not just tell stories, but tell stories verbally, right? This isn't about like writing fantastic things or making together, you know, a deck, is to go take an improv comedy class. Yes. Which is terrifying. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But it's an incredible set of tools and way of thinking that keeps you in the moment and listening and responding to what's actually happening, which is what I find one of the biggest things that people who are presenters or who get up and speak in front of their company are terrible at. They get up and they've got their list of talking points. They stare at their their notes the whole time and they recite them and they're not reading the room. They're not noticing when they've lost their audience or when their audience is bristling at something or when their audience is really excited by something. They're not taking the temperature and adjusting their delivery based off of what they're seeing because they are so nervous about being up in front of them that they are not staying present. So learning how to stay present, respond to what's actually happening is an incredible skill set. And one, it's a muscle. You just got to develop it. It's such a great tip. I think there's a ton of great uh, trial attorneys that have either shared or that a couple that I know that do take improv routinely mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. get really good at it. And I think that's what, if you're listening and you're uh, an attorney in our membership, uh, improv classes are are fantastic. And yeah, also terrifying. <laughs> totally terrifying. I mean, especially I'm a control freak, as I've just told you. And being an improv comedy, you are not in control. <laughs> you and and I think it's actually it's I think it's made me a better parent because you know, you start a scene in improv and you have you have seen uh, you know, uh, mates doing this with you and you have in your head this like, okay, I've got it. I've got the funny joke. I know what I want to get out and you you lay the groundwork. You say the first line. And you're waiting for like your scene mate to say the thing that you need them to say so that you can give the punchline and they don't say it. They say something (laughs) else entirely. And you have a choice in that moment. You can force the punchline, which is actually not going to be funny anymore because they didn't set it up correctly, or you can go with it. You can say yes and, right? The classic technique there. You say, (laughs) yes, that is true. And I'm going to build on that. And I think I would be so bad at playing with toddlers if I had not (laughs) embraced the yes and. I'd be like, no, we're playing doctor. And all of a sudden, you are a fairy. That doesn't make any sense, right? We're like, no, okay, we're a fairy doctor and we are helping the the frogs, the frogs. Okay. Um, and all of a sudden that requires us to go and like make this Lego house again. Great. I'm with you. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a smart piece of advice. Cause I think most team meetings when when we do need to engage, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think of the bad ones I've been in and the bad ones I've led. It could have mm-hmm. just been issued as a memo, right? Like, um, this like- <laughs> is the crux of should have been an email, right? If the meeting has nothing to do with what everyone else who's present has to say or yeah. think or respond to the idea, then it didn't need to be a meeting. It could have been a memo. It could have been an email. The point of a meeting 
is collaboration, conversation, reaction, and having something like evolve by the end that is different from how it started. Otherwise, write it down and send it out. Yeah, I love it. I want to talk about part three of the book because uh, you give some, which seems counterintuitive that there's so many business books out there that don't actually give you know, the math and the metrics on how to do this. You do, right? You provide an actual balance scorecard strategy and you talk about the money, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, Let's talk about the balance scorecard strategy. What is it? How often? How do we measure? So I, I love that this is like the one tool that has gone viral out of all of this work because I originally wrote this as an, uh, a blog post for Forbes. I'm not even joking. I wrote this like <laughs> Christmas Eve one year because at the time my contract required me to publish five times a month and I had only written four things that month and I didn't get paid if I didn't publish a fifth. And so I literally was like, okay, what do I got? What do I have in my arsenal that I could put on the internet in under three hours? And so I dug in through my my record. And I was like, aha, we'll just talk about my balance scorecard. I screenshotted it, put it out on the internet, and it blew up. Um, And I was like, oh, interesting. Apparently, this resonates. So what is a balance scorecard? In the business world, a balance scorecard is this way of thinking about your business that starts from what are our strategic priorities? And then what are the specific sort of goals within each of those priorities that we're going to map out for this year. The priorities might span multiple years. You might say for the next three years, we're focused on this, this, and this. And then the goals are sort of like, here are the things that we're going to do this year to get us toward that priority. And then you're going to have you know, the tactics or the metrics of like, okay, how will I know that I have met that goal? What are the things that I can measure to say yes or no, I've met that goal? So you map this out and, you know, at a company level, you then share this with everyone and everyone's goals kind of have to boil up to the same thing. On a personal level, I started doing this um, years ago as one way to make sure that my career didn't take over my life. (laughs) Because, and this is another thing that Professor Christensen said when I was a student, that it's really easy to put your, like, your marginal hour, your, your extra hour toward work because work is so easily quantifiable. You know, through dollars or promotions or customers or whatever, you know whether that hour was productive. And it's really hard to put that hour toward your kids when you're like, I won't know for 18 years whether that worked out, right? Or to put it toward your health and you're like, should I really go for a run? Mm-hmm. Or I might not. Or to put it toward any of these other things that feel a little more loosey-goosey when you're trying to say, like, was it worth that time? And as a result, people who are really, like, type A achievers continue to overinvest in their careers and underinvest in every other thing that they say matters to them, but they never actually give it the resources it needs. And so the balance scorecard is one way to say, from the top down, what are the things that matter to me? And I mapped it out. I said, I have these financial goals. I have these career professional goals, I have these personal goals, and I have these health goals. And if I say these matter to me, okay, what are the things I'm going to do to get closer to it? And how will I know if I did it or not? And what's helpful is not only do I have to like check in, I do it every six months where I'm like, am I on track or off track? But it also helps me when I have these moments where I have the extra $10 or the extra 20 minutes, I can take a very quick pass at this and say like, I'm on track for these things, but I have so not like invested in those things. Let's focus on that right now. Let's give that a little more attention. And so at the end of the year, I can have this like, yes or no, am I 
am I doing what I need? And then I have at the very bottom of this balanced scorecard, I have like a a little, a very quick, are you happy? Because it's one way to triple check whether the life you're living is the one you want it to be living. It can be easy for people like me who love to achieve goals to achieve all the things on my balanced scorecard and be miserable. Be like, but I got an A. And you're like, yeah, but you got an A on a test that you don't want to be taking. So it's a little bit of like a, just a gut check at the bottom to say, hey, is this plan still working? Are these goals, are these priorities still the right ones? And if not, that might be one of the early signs that you're going to a different season of life, that you have this these friction points and you need to rebalance your portfolio to focus on different priorities for a while. I really like that. I have to ask about capacity utilization. Yeah. You're the first per- it's brilliant. You're the first person. Either I'm reading the wrong stuff or you're <laughs> the first person I've ever heard talk about applying capacity utilization to our lives. We're mired in it with orthodontic <laughs> clinics from a professional standpoint. These yeah. members that listen to us see hundreds of patients a day. So we're t- constantly talking about capacity. But you talk about how applying that in your life in a linear career versus a portfolio life are Mm -hmm. entirely different. And I just really appreciated that because so many healthcare providers Mm -hmm. are burnt out. And so can you you (laughs) share some thoughts around capacity? Yeah. So, I mean, the big idea is, right, I I fully recognize that humans are not manufacturing lines. And yet, (laughs) I think it can be a helpful corollary to understand what really is sort of the maximum capacity of what you are capable of doing, right? Whether it is um, the the amount of time you give to your job, your family, all of the other things, all the things that demand something of you, it adds up to your total capacity. And when one thing asks for more, you have to take it from another. This is how we get to these moments of like working ourselves silly and we haven't seen our family or skipping out on sleep and other things to keep us healthy. And all of a sudden our health starts to take a nosedive, right? Everything adds up to a total of 100%. But what I think is really interesting and important is if we look at the best run manufacturing facilities in the world. I mean, the people who have like worked it out, they've got everything automated, they know how to make things work brilliantly. They cap their capacity utilization at 85%. They do not run their factories at 100% because they recognize that planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. <laughs> yes. Right? Leaving the manufacturing facility, like not running for a few hours every week so that you can do maintenance, leaving it uh, fallow so that you can say, oh, we have, uh, we made a mistake and we need to do a do-over. Well, guess what? Now we have capacity to do that do-over without stressing everyone out. Or having that space for when that really important customer calls and says, this is urgent. I need you to save me. And you're like, great, we can do that for you, right? You're leaving space for the reality of life rather than maxing it out on a day-to-day. And then when life happens and life happens, then you're stressed constantly because you have no space to deal with life. And so it's the same in your personal life. I challenge everyone, and that includes me because I'm still not very good at this, to cap your personal utilization at 85%. And I mean that not just work, Surely not just work. When you think about the time that you have devoted to your family, the time you have promised to your community, the time that you block off for workouts, all of those things add up to 85% of your available time. And you're like, what's my available time? That's a great question. And that in some ways is where we have to start. 
what do you consider available and what do you say this is this is not available it's not even on the table for me to steal from so part of this is like you've got to define what is your starting point what is the denominator of that equation but then challenge yourself to max out at 85% committed in any given week so that you have the buffer not just for naps although i do like naps you have the buffer for when everything falls apart <laughs> when your systems go down when the traffic is terrible when your kid throws up in the middle of a tuesday and you get a call to go pick them up right all of the things that we know happen you have space for all of that and you're not constantly stressed by life that's such a beautiful place to end the interview i i could talk to you all day if you let me i love the book <laughs> i want to make sure listeners have a chance to find out more about you and and find the book and what you're reading and writing and teaching where where can listeners go to learn more about you Sure. So the place I'm hanging out these days is LinkedIn. It's like cool. the nerds won the social media revolution. <laughs> LinkedIn, you can follow me there. Um, I post from time to time. I certainly share other things that I am loving on there. Um, or you can send me a note uh, through my website, christinawallace.com. It goes straight to my Gmail. And uh, I read all of those and usually respond. Cool. <laughs> Christina, thank you so much. Thanks for writing the book. It's brilliant. We appreciate you coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thank you to Christina Wallace for coming on the show. You can check out her book in the show notes below and what she's writing and teaching at Harvard Business School. You can also subscribe to The Burleson Box and become a member. Just check out the show notes below today's episode. If you liked the show, leave us a review. Share us with a friend or colleague and be sure to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use to consume your podcast. And until next time, take care and be well. I'll see you right here inside another episode of The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer, remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.